Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 30. Today, Paul and I are delighted to be joined by Professor Douglas Kerr to talk about Conan Doyle's autobiography, Memories and Adventures. Douglas studied at Cambridge and Warwick before joining the English department at the University of Hong Kong, where he served as Dean of the Arts Faculty and is today Honorary Professor of English. He's published widely on George Orwell, Wilfred Owen, The Orient and Empire in English Writing, and of course, Conan Doyle. His book, Conan Doyle, Writing, Profession and Practice, was released by Oxford University Press in 2013, and he's now general editor of the Edinburgh edition of the works of Arthur Conan Doyle, for which he edited Memories and Adventures and won an award from the ACD Society earlier this year. Douglas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to see you both. And I'll uh, I'll get going with the first question, Douglas, um, which is how did you first... Uh become introduced to the world of of Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh, I was hoping that you would ask me that question. I can't tell you how, but I can tell you when exactly. And it's a pity you can't all see this, but I'm holding in my hands a copy of the Professor Challenger Stories, Mm -hmm. published by John Murray in the 1950s. And in the flyleaf, very carefully written, but in (laughs) pencil, is my name. And it says, Thursday, 21st of June, 1962. That was the <laughs> exact day on which I encountered um, Conan Doyle for the first time. And I can't remember now if, if I bought that book for myself or more likely somebody gave it to me, I should think. But it did mean that I must have known about Sherlock Holmes. I'm sure I did. But my first reading of Conan Doyle was not in Sherlock Holmes. It was actually in Professor Challenger. Mm. And I think that's probably rather oriented my later approach to Conan Doyle, which is not necessarily to put Sherlock Holmes front and centre in everything, mm. but to think of Conan Doyle as a, as a writer of, of broad um, interests and subjects. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing about this volume, which has all, is it five or six, Professor Challenger stories, is it starts with The Lost World, which is fine, and I absolutely love The Lost World. Mm. Then it goes on to the poison belt, and I like that too. And I should say in 1962, I was t- 10 years old. But then it's got the land of mist. <laughs> and, you know, as a 10-year-old, I was incapable of recognizing that this was a, a different kind of story from the, from the previous and indeed the following ones. So I read it rather as a, as a Professor Challenger Malone adventure story, ah, um, swallowing whole all the stuff about um, you know the, the spiritual side of it, 
which to me just took its place and, uh, on the shelf, as it were, alongside the other Professor Challenger story. So that was a very, it seems to me now in retrospect, of course, an extremely odd reading experience. Yeah. It's a very different kind of proposition from the others. But isn't that interesting? It is. If you're a naive reader, as we all are at the age of 10, you just, um, it's just just another Challenger story, which I enjoyed, actually. I like the stuff about um, investigating the haunted house and, yes. and the, the <laughs> mysteries of um, the spirit world. Enjoyed it all. Yeah. And still do. As a I, I was going to say, I mean, I, I clearly haven't grown up because I still like the ghost hunting sequence <laughs> in Land of Mist. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's, it's the only book I, I can think of in, in, in popular literature where, where somebody goes hunting ghosts in the style of a big game hunter, you know, rather than using any paranormal sort of equipment and techniques. That's absolutely right. And in fact, Lord John Roxham was already my favourite character, I think, in the Challenger series. And, and he acquits himself in, in very typical ways when it comes <laughs> to ghost hunting. Um, so that's the land of mist, and we're doing that in our edition. And mm. uh, Professor Christine Ferguson is editing that for us, and she's a great expert on um, spiritualist and uh, occult mm. writing in the late Victorian, early twentieth century. So I'm looking forward very much to her edition. Mm. Well, that sort of nicely segues us onto onto the Edinburgh edition of the works. You know, tell us a bit about how that came about and, and maybe why you wanted to start with, with Memories and Adventures. Um, it's it's arose out of a conversation I had with Jackie Jones at Edinburgh University Press. And this was not long after I'd published my Conan Doyle book, the, the monograph, Conan Doyle Writing Professional Practice mm. with Oxford. And I was talking with Jackie Jones about another publishing project which I'll tell you all about some other time. But Conador came up, and Edinburgh University Press, I can't remember if it was Jackie or me who, who first broached the idea of a scholarly edition. But Edinburgh University Press is very interested. They're a relatively small academic press, I mean, compared to Oxford or Cambridge or mm. Harvard or Chicago or whatever. Um, but they have a very good reputation, and one thing they do particularly well is scholarly editions of Scottish writers. Mm. So they've done James Hogg, for example. They've done Walter Scott. They're doing Walter Scott. Um, Robert Lewis Stevenson also. Scott and Stevenson were, of course, Edinburgh University alumni. Mm. And and we thought, well, now Conan Doyle, another Edinburgh University alumni. So why not um, get the press to do a scholarly edition? So that's how it began. what you do next is, if you are thinking of uh, starting a scholarly edition, you have to assemble an editorial board of the, the great and the good to advise you. You have to, if you're the general editor, you have to compose um, a, a manual for all the editors, which mm. contains all the sort of technical bits about what to do, but also the general policy of the edition. Then you've got to bring together um your volume editors, a different editor for for each volume. Some volumes have two editors. Mm. Um, And while doing that, um, more or less decide on the architecture of the edition. And this this would take me some time to discuss, but we decided not to go for a complete works. Mm. Um, 
So then you've got your scholarly editors and you set them all to work. And I, as the general editor, am kind of overlooking in a benign way <laughs> all of these um, editors who are working. Some of them work very fast, some of them work very slow. Some of them have nearly completed their work. Others haven't started it yet, but it's coming along. So my job is really to manage to manage the project. Um, we, when we were thinking about this, we divided Conan Doyle's career at 1900 mm. into the first and second half. And we thought that we would begin with the, with the first tranche, the, the 19th century stuff. Um, but of course, Memories and Ventures is the anomaly there. And I wanted to begin with that book as the kind of, um, this sounds rather pompous, but it's the, the, the flagship of the... Um, uh, edition for a number of reasons. Memories and Ventures has never been properly edited. Mm. Um, and there's an awful lot of work there. It seemed like an appropriate book to kick off the edition because it's centered upon the author himself. It gives us so much information <clears throat> about himself, his, his life and his work. Um, and that edition took me an awful long time, becomes then the sort of reference edition for mm. The late editors, so it it sets the the architecture and the template of how to do it. Um, the other reason I want to start with memories and ventures is that I've always been interested in this book. Um, it's been very much neglected in the scholarly critical literature. People haven't been very interested in it, but I think it it, it is of enormous interest and importance. So we put that up first, and that edition came out. Um, at the end of last year, I think actually the publication date is 2022, but it came out in November. Mm. And the other books, it's, I think of it as this like a great sort of argosy of a fleet of ships <laughs> sailing across the ocean. So Memory of Adventures has reached harbour and the others are beginning to come in. So we've got another one um, in press at the moment, the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, right. Um, I have just today received the complete drafts of a volume of the adventures so they're not coming in chronological order it just depends how the editors get on um and the medical volumes stark monroe and um uh round the red lamp they're not very far behind and so we're it's starting to flow now, which is very, very encouraging. When you do a scholarly edition, it, it's a long haul. It's a sort of steeplechase thing. It's not a spread. yes. Um, and the early months and years <laughs> can be a bit depressing because you're working, <laughs> working, and nothing comes out the other end. But now we're actually starting to show product, so I'm I'm very encouraged by this. And we have a, a fantastic team of editors working with us, plus all the support people, the, the board. Uh, the reviewers that we use, everyone at the press, and so on. Mm. I thought the, uh, the the scope of the Edinburgh works was quite daunting, and then you've just mentioned that they're doing Scott as well, so maybe <laughs> maybe not quite as daunting as it could be. Yeah, for Canada, we're we're envisaging twenty two volumes, but you know, if you're doing the complete works of Walter Scott, and God knows how many volumes that yeah. would be. I'd just you know, there are. But these Victorians, uh, these 19th century writers, they knew how to write. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they got on with Conan Doyle himself, was, of course, very prolific 
and very fluent. Um, someone else that I'm interested in is Joseph Conrad, mm. a great, great writer, but subject to horrible writer's block, mm. where he describes in his letters in agonizing detail uh, he's oh, all today. I sat in front of a blank piece of paper. I couldn't think of anything to put down. These problems did not afflict Conan Doyle. Mm. No, right at speed, enormous speed. And in fact, there's a there's an interesting bit that you have about in men, in the discussion of memories and adventures, the manuscript where you're talking about, you know, mm. <clears throat> his absence of punctuation, which is mm. a common thing in all of his <laughs> manuscripts. He seems to just leave that to the publisher. <laughs> but he, it's almost like he's writing at such speed that he. You know, it's just coming out of his head. I think that's right. And if, if you look at the handwriting, um, it is very fluent. Um, and it's very little corrected. Mm. Again, my contrast would be with a, a Conrad manuscript, not to mention you know, somebody like Proust, where <laughs> you, can, you can hardly see the original <laughs> writing from all the, the scorings out and the marginalia and the additions and so on. Conan Doyle was an intellectually very well-organized person. I think, and he also had he had qualities of, as we all know, of directness and decisiveness, which meant that he's luckily for an editor, I should say, he's a pretty fluent writer. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and when he settled down to Memories and Ventures, it came out because the instalments were coming out in um, uh, periodicals, mostly in the Strand, and you know he just he set himself deadlines and he stuck to them. In spite, you have to remember all the other things that he was doing at yes. the time. Mm. Um, so he's remarkable. He clearly had very, very good powers of concentration. Mm. He could write wherever he happened to be. And the manuscript is not all on uniform notepaper. Some of it's more or less on the back of envelopes or in school exercise books and bits of torn things where there's something else on the back. Um, so very directed. Yes. Right. Mm. I mean, that's an interesting thing in itself about the manuscript. I mean, I'm, I'm used to seeing, you know, if you go and have a look at the Gerard manuscripts in the British Library, they're all in the same, same sort of full scap or exercise books that have been just written mm. on single side. And, uh, uh, but, but you described in, the, in a late essay in the, in the volume about how this is actually almost like an assembly piece. And there's a mixture of strand articles and a mixture of pearson's articles as well as typescript and so i i wonder if that says anything about the nature of this autobiography most of it was originally written for memories and adventures right and these are the bits that come out in the strand some of it bits he's cannibalizing some of his earlier stuff so there's for example a, a chapter on his his whaling adventure you know, in, in the Arctic. Mm. And that's based on um, an article which he published in the Strand in, I think, 1897. So that's many years before. But actually, if you look at the, the manuscript papers, you can see that he's taken, he's torn out those pages from the Strand mm. and he scores through <laughs> various paragraphs and he, he adds other bits and even adds several pages at a time. So he's not simply reproducing it, but he was using that as a sort of aid memoir, I think. Right. Other bits later on, say most chapters were written for The Strand. Some are in Pearson's, one or two in Cornhill, and some were, were not published. Very few were not published at all um, before, the, before the book came out. Um, later in the story where there's a lot of, you know, 
So I'm dropping a footnote here. One of the really interesting things about this as a literary biography mm. is how much of it is actually about military matters. Yes. Mm. There are nine chapters in that book which are about the army. Yeah. Nine chapters. I mean, you wouldn't get that in Proust. So <laughs> um, Proust actually did his national service, so might be a chapter on that. Anyway, uh, later on in the book where he's he comes to the First World War, he has very good chapters about the sort of social history of the war, being the home front, as, as we mm. would say. Um, but he also, as you know, went as a reporter. He went to the Italian front, the French, the British front, and later, very late in the war, at the time of the um, uh, attack on the Hindenburg Line, he was mostly with the Australians. Those, for those things, <clears throat> he published article, newspaper articles um, in England and later produced three chapters of war reporting, which he published in a separate pamphlet. Now, those make their way with some changes, but not many, hmm. into Memories and Adventures. So he's using using that material. Hmm. Most of it, though, and it's, it's a longish book, most of it was, was written, was purpose-written for right. the autobiography. Hmm. Do you think it was always in his head to to write a, a, a full memoir, um, I mean, it, you know, so many of his contemporaries and the people who inspired him. I'm thinking of, of people like Anthony Hope or James Payne or, or Cutcliffe Hine. All these kind of people wrote these these memoirs. And and do you feel that he he, he felt he need he needed to do this to almost stamp that this is who I think I am or this is who I'd like to project myself as as as, as being. Yeah. I, I think that's a, a very good way of putting it. Um, there were plenty of literary examples. Um, he was partic a particular admirer of Trollope, actually, in his autobiography. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and I think that in 1923, which is when he starts, the first installments appear in The Strand. The book's published in the following year, 1924. He was at a... I mean, we're all at a stage, aren't we? <laughs> He, he was at a stage, and that stage, the First World War was over. He was he pinned his spiritualist colours very much to the master. He was out as a spiritualist. Um, he was a well-known, successful, reasonably rich writer. And I think also he probably understood that his best writing was behind him. Mm. He was getting on a bit. Um, he still continued to write fiction more or less right up to the end, but I think that he probably thought that, you know, he was beginning to perhaps to lose it as a fiction writer. Mm. And I think he, as you say, he wanted to make an account um, of himself. He, when I think, I didn't, I should have put this in the in my preface, but when I think of um Conan Doyle Memories and Adventures, I, I think there's a wonderful line in a poem by W.B. Yeats, mm. and the line is, the finished man among his enemies. <laughs> right. Yeats is, is writing about his, his own life, and he does the phases that he goes through, and I can quote this, the ignominy of boyhood, the distress of boyhood growing into man, the unfinished man and his pain brought face to face with his own clumsiness. Then finally, the finished man among his enemies. Mm. So I think in 1923, Conan was a finished man, not in the sense of exhausted, but in the sense of rounded. Mm. His, 
development w- was completed. He knew, as you were saying, Paul, he, he knew who he was. Mm. He knew what he'd done. Uh, he knew what else he wanted to do. And he was at that stage in his own career where he was ready to devote really the rest of his years to something other than literature, that is his mm. speech, his mission, and all that mm. extraordinary, exhausting traveling that he did in, in his yeah. last decade, back mm. and forth. So he's the finished man among his enemies. Mm. Um, he knew what he was up against, mm. <laughs> and particularly as a spiritualist. And certainly, you know, spiritualists had many enemies. But he was also at that stage, he, he was highly visible public figure, loved and respected, though beginning to lose some of that Mm. respect for reasons that we we know about. Mm. So I think it was the right time. And also, I think it's worth saying that he was proud of his life. Mm. Um, Not in an arrogant way, but if you read... um, If you look at his own... The preface that he writes to Memories and Adventures, he says... I have had a life which, for variety and romance, could, I think, hardly be exceeded. Yeah. And he's right, mm-hmm. isn't he? Yeah, It absolutely. could hardly be exceeded. In all these different spheres of activity in which he had distinguished himself, you know, first of all, he trained as a medic, then his mm-hmm. great successes as an author, his political life, his relations with many of the great people of his age, he was extraordinarily sociable, mm. uh, knew everybody. Um, and then later on, his spiritualist experiences and, and battles. And I think he thought that, I say without being arrogant, that, that was a story worth telling. And indeed mm. it was. Mm. Um, so that's the time, 1924, when he does it. Later on, there's a second edition, but that's another story. It is. Mm-mm. It is indeed. Mm. Um, you You mentioned there about the fact that he... He's a rounded man, which I think is a great, great way of putting it. And he's sort of laying out his the store, the stall of his evolution, as it were. But how honest is he in that? Because there mm. are you make a point in there that there are several sort of glaring emissions which have come mm. up several times. People talk about, you know, particularly his father. There, there are three things in particular which he definitely leaves out. First of all, the the alcoholism of his father, which was for for that generation, even for a medical man, a cause of great shame, mm. because alcoholism was thought to be not just a sort of bodily weakness, but a, a moral collapse as well. So he just doesn't mention it. He sort of hints at it slightly mm. um, when he's talking about his father and how his father's career sort of ran into the sand and so on. It's the the hints are there. So that's omitted. Um, secondly, there's the question of Brian Charles Waller, mm. uh, which he's not even named no. in the story, and yet he was such an important person for the history of that family. And clearly, Waller's relations with Conan Doyle were difficult. And in particular, Waller's relations with Conan Doyle's mother mm. were potentially scandalous, mm. I would say. I mean, we, we don't know what went on, but she put herself very much in 
to his world. He kind of looked after her almost as, as if she were a mistress. Mm. You know, I suspect she, she wasn't. Mm. Um, that's something he didn't want to talk about. And then the third thing, the, his marriage. Yes. Uh, he's, he's living with a, a dying wife, um, a tubercular, dying slowly, actually, mm. but very much thanks to his care. Um, but nonetheless, dying, and he's already met a woman who's going to mean much more to him, as it turns out. Mm. And during his wife's, his first wife's last years, there was a relationship with Jean Leckie, which, I mean, to this day, we don't really know everything about it. But again, it was something very delicate. So now, these things don't appear in the autobiography. You might say that that's dishonest, um, <laughs> but then... It depends what you expect of an autobiography. Yes, indeed. It? Yeah. Um, there are kinds of autobiographical writing where everything is on the table, everything is confessed. Um, but he set his face against that. It was utterly against his character yes. to write in such a way. And there's a very funny moment, you remember, when he describes his return from the Sudan, where he's been to report on Kitchener's advance towards the uh, Mahdist forces, he finds himself on a boat going up the Nile with nothing to read except Rousseau's Confession <laughs> <laughs> and nothing to eat but I think tinned peaches. <laughs> so by the time he gets to Cairo, um, he's never going to eat a tinned peach again. He's certainly never going to open Rousseau's Confessions again. So it's not that kind of autobiography. Let, let me just say, though, speaking as an editor now, mm. that one of the interesting things about editing is that you do get little insights um, which do reveal something. And one thing that I like to quote, and I'll do so if you don't mind, mm. um, actually comes from the, the first chapter. We have the manuscript of that and all the different stages. Now, in the first chapter, there's a moment where he's talking about the financial difficulties of, of the family. Mm. And it, they were in pretty dire straits much of the time. And he says, my noble sister Annette, who died just as the sunshine of better days came into our lives, went out at a very early age as a governess to Portugal and sent all her salary home. My younger sisters, Lottie and Connie, both did the same thing, full stop, and I helped as I could, full stop. And then he deleted, and I helped as I could. And oh. I think that's probably out mm. of modesty. Mm. You know, he doesn't put himself, say that his sacrifice was as great as that of his sisters, which indeed it wasn't, because I mean, a lot of this money was actually going to support him in his studies. Mm. But then he writes the sentence in again. That's <laughs> the line, and I helped as I could. And I think that's because he looked at what he'd written and said, well, it looks as if um, I, was, I was really ungrateful about this. I just allowed my sister to do all the work and didn't do anything about it. So there's a little drama there mm. which an editor can see or a reader of the manuscript can see. And then the next sentence, uh, or the next two sentences, go like this. It says, but it was still my dear mother who bore the long sordid strain until though she retained the bearing of a duchess she had the worn hands of a charwoman wow and then of course he deletes that yeah um <clears throat> he says uh, it was still my dear mother who bore the long sordid strain full stop mm. so the the very poignant very victorian bit about how her 
she worked so hard that her hands were like the hands of a working class mm. manual manual worker, a, a charwoman. Um, that actually is a, a wonderful commentary on his mother's character and mm. in some ways a very great compliment to her. But he must also have thought, would she have wanted me to say Yes. That? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, when Dudley Edwards reminds me that, of course, Conan, she was dead by this time, his mother, but Conan Doyle believed that she could look down and watch him writing. Of course. So she's, as it were, looking over his shoulder and she's looking at that sentence about <laughs> how she had worn hands of a charwoman. Mm. <laughs> I, I don't think that's going to happen. So in these little moments, I've said to you before that the manuscript actually shows very little indecision, but that there's a little nexus of yeah. things there. Mm. Talking mm. about things that are very important to emotionally important to him. Yeah. And we learn more about him than we knew before. So in the edition, of course, in the text, I can't include uh, she had the worn hands of a charwoman because he actually deleted it. So I have mm. to follow his um, uh, instructions there. Mm. But we put it in the, in the textual notes. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, can still, you can still read about it. So in many ways, it's an autobiography that it's not just that he hides certain things, mm. but he doesn't, on the whole, tell you very much about his inner, his inner emotional life. No. There's quite a lot about his intellectual life, his beliefs, his, his loss of faith and then the stuff. There's a lot about his spiritual life. Um, and there's a certain amount about his family, but it's, as it were, I don't want to say superficial. It's not, he, he's not interested in inviting us into the inner sanctum. And I think, of course, he does that elsewhere. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting you, you, you picked there on the... Um... His use, I find particularly interesting in the uh, the piece you've just quoted, the the, the use of the word sordid mm. is very, mm. and, and he's done this earlier story, I think in the early 1890s, a sordid affair, um, which yeah. you know, is is disguised autobiography, in in fiction about the, um, the 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 struggling seamstress and her alcoholic artist father. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, I I don't know if you feel he, he tries, he gets a lot of this out of his system through his fiction. Yeah, I mean, Starkman Row Letters is, is the obvious case as well. Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely right, Paul. It, it goes into the, the fiction um, very much so. But it's also and I, I, not at all wishing to impugn his sincerity. He is a writer. Yeah. And this mm. stuff about that sentence, I think, about the hands of the charwoman, I think it comes straight out of Dickens, don't you think? Yes. Mm. Very much the Dickens kind of trope, isn't yeah. it? The saintly mm. mother who works and works for her children sacrifices herself, and, and this is the evidence. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's a flourish, a Dickensian flourish, and goodness knows we get plenty of those throughout Conan Doyle's writing, don't we, in the, yeah. in the fiction as the non-fiction. One of the nice things that I thought you really brought out in the introduction was that you, you sort of evaluate Memories of Adventures not just as autobiography memoir, but also as a piece of writing. And that we've often overlooked it as, as uh, overlooked it as simply as a, a, I think it's a great piece of writing in itself. My background is in literary studies. I, I'm not a historian, um, <clears throat> so 
of course, I'm, I'm interested in this as a piece of writing. And I was thinking the other day, why, why do we value Conan Doyle as a writer, objectively speaking? Answer, because what he really does well, and almost better than anyone else, is narrative, mm. storytelling. So here we've got a story. Um, and although, as we were talking about before, in some ways it's cobbled together from bits and pieces, it actually has a rather majestic flow, uh, and he doesn't waste any time either. So there's there's a quite compelling rhythm, I think, to Memories and Adventures. There are moments where he loses it a bit. I think, for example, there's a long chapter about his journey to Canada in 1914, mm. which he, for which he published articles in Cornhill, I think it was. And that's just too long, in my opinion. And, and actually, in the later edition, he, he quite sensibly left it out. But I think that his, his storytelling is his great gift. And one thing that he manages particularly well in Memories and Ventures is the integration of the, the different aspects of his life, the different activities mm. of his life, where he moves from, from medicine to literature, from literature to spirituality, from spirituality to his absolute love affair with the army. Yeah. <laughs> and, and going, you know, accompanying all, all these uh, campaigns. Um, chapter on Sherlock Holmes, chapter on sport, and the moments when these things come together. And I think you will agree with me that the absolutely pivotal year for Conan Doyle, 1891, mm. where everything happens. Yeah. Uh, it's when he really comes into his own. Yeah. All the things that are going on at that time. So he's he's a great storyteller, and that's why it, it's a it's a really good book. Mm. The interesting dilemma, I think, uh, is the final chapter, because he has famously the, a, a different final chapter in the second edition mm. to the first edition. That mm. first edition is the psychic quest, and that is the natural com- culmination of the story. But he sort of then replaces it with this anodyne second piece called Up to Date, which doesn't really have the same punch, as it were. It's actually quite a sad read as well, I think. But but the psychic quest ending, you, you, I, I think it's notable that in this edition, you've gone with the, the first edition final chapter mm. as opposed to the second. I mean, the, 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 the up-to-date is in there as an appendix, isn't it? But um, That's right, yeah. Um, it, it's such an interesting thing, and I really don't actually understand it. No. Um, I entirely agree with you that the original closing chapter of the Psychic Quest, which is where the it's the full orchestra of, of spiritualism, um, is in obvious ways the 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 telos of the whole thing. It's where yes. the, the whole thing has been directed towards. And I make the point in in my introduction to to uh, this edition that there is a tradition in English of spiritual autobiography um, which works like this Mm. Um, so you have the young man who's sort of floundering around and he hasn't found God properly and he he does rash things and doesn't know what's going on and then he learns the secret of faith and this moves towards a great sort of redemptive triumph at at the end and that's what um, Memories and Ventures is Mm. it's a spiritual autobiography in that sense if it ends with a psychic (laughs) yes but then what happens I don't know what happened and I can't explain it Um, unless it's possible that John Murray asked for another chapter 
um, because, you know, seven years had intervened, a lot had happened. I wanted to know what about your more recent works, you should list them. And that's what he does in the last chapter. Mm. But I think it's a spoiler, actually, um, in terms of the architecture of the book. Yes, I don't like it. And that's why in this edition, which sticks, which takes as, as its sort of base text, the 1923 edition, mm. we start with a psychic quest. And then there's an appendix. If you want, you can read um, uh, up to date mm. afterwards. But I agree with you, Mark. It, it's a rather sorry chapter. But th- that I think, I mean, I don't want to do the special pleading for him, but in 1929, 1930, he was very ill. Yes. And I think that his those famous powers of concentration were pretty taxed. Um, and the, 1920, the 1930 edition wasn't published until after his death, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Um, so perhaps we can we can forgive it. It does, it contains some, you know, some interesting data. Yes. Um, but it, it's not a particularly distinguished mm-hmm. piece of writing, I think, whereas the Psychic Quest is the proper culmination, I think, of the book. It is. It feels like the natural end. And in fact, I was struck reading it again um, Psychic Quest reads so similarly to the end of Stark Monroe Letters, which similarly has is a tale of a materialist mm-hmm. young man trying to make his way in the world who actually finds faith. And then, I mean, the end of the Stark Monroe Letters, spoiler for anybody who hasn't read it, is that <laughs> Stark Monroe and his wife die in a train accident. Um, but, they are, but they are reunited in their love, even though he's mm. not a spiritualist, you know, officially at that time. There's the, that sort of shape. You get that same shape of a story in the psychic quest, but you don't get it with up to date. Um, that that that's very good. That is very good about the shape. I, I think you're right. It's a shape that that appealed to him. Yeah. I think, and Scott Monroe, of course, give, gives us quite a lot in quite a lot more detail the early intellectual biography. Yes, dealing with Darwin and and all and science and yeah. all that stuff. So I would say that there are actually there are three autobiographies. There's Memories and Ventures, which is the main one. There's Star Monroe, which is the fictional fictional version of his early life. And then there's the wonderful Through the Magic mm-hmm. Door, mm-hmm. which is his literary autobiography. Um, very unexpected in many ways. Yes. Very charming, also. It is, it's yeah. one I've, I've I've often recommended through the magic door for people to say if you really want to get something of Conan Doyle, read this book, because he, I was he's more relaxed, and he's chatting, mm. and and it just yes. it, it's again yeah. it, it flows beautifully, and and it just has that kind of fireside chat with a with a man who's who's bubbling over with his enthusiasms, but there's a lot of. Um, philosophy going on behind it it's, it's, it's fascinating absolutely one it is a wonderful book i agree with everything that you say i would add it's a very friendly mm. book mm. Uh, because he he says at the beginning that these books are his mm. friends and it, it it's a way of reading which is almost totally foreign to the way we mm. read now i think particularly academic <laughs> reading um but he has a, a personal relationship with you know or the Scott, or um, uh, you know, Froude, or all of these people, um, and it's natural for him to think of these people's books as an aspect of their personality with which he's engaging. Whereas nowadays we've we've been taught 
really not to think in that yeah. rather romantic way about writing. Mm-hmm. We, we, we tend to, this is what modernism did for us, <laughs> separates out the, the work from the mm-hmm. person, um, which I, I'm all in favour of, though I think we've perhaps lost something in the way there's such enjoyment in Through mm-hmm. the Magic Door. And it, it's, the, it's the it's the extra piece, I think, of the puzzle. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yes, there's a real enthusiasm in that. And we've, we've always wanted to do Through the Magic Door on the podcast, but we thought we had to work <laughs> our way up to it. <laughs> you know, a bit like um, the amazing footnotes that you have in the in Memories and Adventures, the sheer volume of footnotes. I, I didn't envy you the task for a moment, all of the names that you had to <laughs> research, because he's he is a phenomenal name dropper. Well, I, I have to tell you, Mark, actually, I love doing footnotes. I love it. Um, <clears throat> they're sort of catnip to me. Um, <clears throat> and I could have, I actually had counted, I ended up writing 79 pages of footnotes, about which I'm slightly embarrassed. <laughs> um, but I have to tell you, that was cut down. <laughs> what I'd originally written. Now, some of them, you know, quite a lot of, for example, the names of all these Boer War generals and colonels and stuff, endless. Um, that's not all that enjoyable, finding out who, who they all were. But his, as he says in his own preface, his life was so varied. Mm. Um, and he was certainly a name dropper, but he had an awful lot of names to drop. Yes. And I think this there's a serious point here about the kind of writer he was, the kind of man of letters that he was, um, a popular author, certainly, but also a public figure mm. who, I mean, you contrast him to Kipling, mm. who's in, in some ways, his, his kind of his other. Um, Kipling buried himself in uh, Burridge, is it, in Sussex. Mm. And his wife sort of stood at the door with a flaming sword <laughs> and kept everybody away and he went on with his work. Conrad is the opposite kind of writer from that. He embraces everything. Um, in my uh, book about Conan Doyle, I, I make a list of all the clubs and associations he belonged yes. to. It's enormous. Yeah, It's huge. And they're sporting and political and psychic and local and all sorts of things. He was a great joiner. Um, and that's the that's the kind that's the way that he envisaged the life of the man of letters as it suited him, mm. and that is what what puts him in touch with just everybody. <laughs> and the 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 interesting thing about him is in the early part of his life when he's a GP in practice in Southsea, he is every day in and out of the houses of the very poor, almost destitute people who are really struggling. So he knew about that aspect of life. Later on, when he was successful, he also knew about the glamorous dinner parties and and meeting the royal family and and all the generals and all that. So it's a a width of social experience I don't think anyone else had at that time. Lisa, I'm trying. You, you probably immediately think of five or six. <laughs> no, I was. I, I was just thinking about Dickens as the only person I could think of who was sort of similarly. But but that's earlier. And, and, and later on, you, yeah. the other one I would, I'd put in that sort of field is, is, is John Buchan. Yeah, being the son of a of a minister, 
a Scottish minister, and then he's worked his way up and mixes very easily with the upper class as well, and various. He's he's yes, he's very very different to Doyle, um, but again, someone who moves easily between between different worlds. And it ends up as Conan Doyle did not, with significant political mm, appointment mm, mm. as Governor General mm. of Canada. You know, we must get together and write a book about Scotsmen mm. on the make <laughs> in, in literature. Um, one thing that struck me about Conan Doyle's literary career is how much he was helped by there's a kind of Scottish mafia in mm. London. Um, they you know scratch each other's backs, and I think that would be a really interesting topic. Mm, yeah, Buckingham was a bit later, but then you know, there are relations with Nelson's mm, publishers that yeah. Buckingham worked for, and, and so on. And they they must have known each other, may even have may even have met in South Africa. Um, um, so yeah, uh, an, an interesting pairing. And Dickens also, in, in, a, in a way, in a sense, in a more mm. obvious way. Um, I, I think that Conan Doyle, like many, many late Victorian writers, saw himself as the child of Dickens. Yeah. You, you get that again yeah. with, with the early the, the, the firm of Girdleston, where he's he's obviously at that time steeped in in Dickens and Lefano, and and doing the the, the yeah. Doyle version of yeah. a sensationalist novel, and and he knows it isn't quite him, yes. and it doesn't quite come off. But again, it's a it's a fun read and, and fascinating. Yes. To watch his progression from yeah. that into into the more yeah. straightforward uh, or, or deceptively straightforward writing that he does in the in the Sherlock Holmes stories and so on, mm. Mm. we are getting really close to an hour. Gosh. <laughs> amazing, amazingly enough, but I'm just thinking, Douglas, just mm. tell us a bit more about what we can expect from the Edinburgh edition team coming soon. Yes, we're taking a break from from conferences this year. Um, we've had three in a row and we had COVID and all those difficulties. But we are envisaging, and I can't remember in what order they're coming, um, but you can start thinking about this, a conference on Conan Doyle and history. Oh, mm. wonderful. And a conference on Conan Doyle and genre. Aha, yeah. Um, these these are likely to be the kind of organising topics for the coming conference. Don't have a date for them yet, but mm. they'll be coming in the next um, two or three years. As for publications, as I said, I think the the next one to come out will be Jonathan Cranfield's uh, edition of Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. Mm. Cranfield, you, you know, from his work on The Strand yes. um, and Conan Doyle. Um, then possibly Andrew Glazard's Adventures, Sherlock Holmes. But, but both, both of these editors have written monographs on, on uh, Conan Doyle, particularly on Holmes. Then, as I say, we're probably... I don't want to give a hostage to fortune here, but possibly the medical volumes hmm. may come next, hmm. up Monroe and around the red lamp. And I know that Christine Ferguson is making very fast progress with the land of mist, which really she hmm. shouldn't be doing because that's in strand two. It's 1920. <laughs> it's a late book, but you know, it's, it, that's great that she's, she's progressing very enthusiastically yeah. with that. So I can't tell you, you know, it depends on, on the editors and they all have other commitments and I ought to make it perfectly clear that they're not paid anything for this. <laughs> um, so it's a real labor of love. Mm. Um, but I think that the edition has finally got a momentum. Mm. And I'm very encouraged at, at the way that it's going. Yeah. So fingers crossed uh, for the 22 volumes. As I say, we've we've had to leave out quite a lot, um, 
for example, we're not doing many of the historical novels, which I think Conan Doyle would be mm. very upset about. Yes. <laughs> um, but with 22 volumes, it's possible if any of us are still standing at the end of that, we could add more because it's an open-ended mm. thing. Well, I think Conan Doyle also said, I think he said to Stevenson, didn't he, that, you know, an author is not uh, uh, is not well served by having mm. their entire back catalogue published. So, uh, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> <other point. laughs> yeah. wonderful. No, he's right. Well, invite me back. I'd be delighted. To Absolutely. I would just say how much I enjoyed doing the door. And also, you're doing a great service by bringing to light a, quite a lot of the stories and writings that many people, including me, hadn't read or really thought about. And I found that that's a, a great virtue of this. So keep it up, thank guys. You. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah. Mm. As I say to people, we, we read Conan Doyle, so you don't have to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, actually, it's, you know, it tends to be the other way around. I listen to the podcast and I think, oh, I'll have to go away and read that story now. That's, that's what we're <laughs> trying to do. That's what like, <laughs> that's that's great. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Douglas. It's been wonderful to speak to you today and best of luck with the rest of the Edinburgh edition uh, and the mm. Toronto conference when it comes. So thanks a lot, both of you. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a really fascinating discussion. Really enjoyed having Douglas on the podcast. And Memories and Adventures is such a interesting book. I'm sure we could have gone on for a, an awful lot longer. Yeah, I think we've we've just um, you know touched the surface really today. Um, we we got through plenty of. Uh, interesting points about the, the book but there's 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 so much more to uh, to go out with with this so um there, there will be return journeys to it i think quite definitely with uh, with, with with future episodes of doings of doyle mm-hmm. so that brings us to the end of the podcast thanks again to douglas for joining us today if you'd like to read the show notes you can find them at doingsofdoyle.com and if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast you can do, do so at patreon.com forward slash doings of Doyle. And what have we got on the podcast next time, Paul? Well, we've been discussing some of the medical stories with uh, with Douglas today, and next time we will um, discuss one of the one of the darker entries in in um, that side of, of Conan Doyle's work, uh, The Curse of Eve. Ah, brilliant, mm. The Curse of Eve. So, until then, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs> People ask me, will I write any more Sherlock Holmes stories? I, I certainly don't think it's at all probable. But as I grow older, the psychic uh, subject always grows in intensity, and then one becomes more earnest upon it, and I should think that my few remaining years will probably be devoted much more in that direction than in the direction of literature. <laughs> <laughs>